to the Run to Daylight podcast. I'm your host, Todd Burrows, joined as often by my co-host, Eric N. Moody. Eric, welcome. And uh, we have two really good guests, and they're going to help us to understand best ball a lot better. Uh, Michael Dubner of Rotoviz is joining us, and we're going to talk spike weeks, functional fantasy points. He's done some fascinating articles, and I'm really looking forward to discussing them with him. Um, I also want to thank our partners over at the FFPC. We are going to be talking FFPC best ball roster construction with Chris Allen. Uh, Chris uh, came on my pod a few years ago and I predicted great things for him. And he has lived up to that um, very much so. So I'm looking forward to him getting on and talking some FFPC roster construction. I am in about six FFPC best ball drafts right now, starting at $35 up to almost infinity. Uh, you can play high stakes, best ball, dynasty. And coming up soon, we will have the FBG uh, $350 contests. If you buy three contests, uh, you get a savings um of uh fifty dollars and also right now if you <coughs> sign up for some fbgs you get a free 35 dollar credit to play best ball and you have to schedule it uh there is a date on there i don't have it in front of me i uh kind of did this last minute today anyway go to myffpc.com find out more and thank you everyone for joining us eric Welcome to the show. No, excited to be here. Hey, it's Friday night. You know, it's always good to uh, chat about fantasy football. Uh, I know they had some news today, which uh, I thought was fascinating. Obviously, a lot of big trades, uh, you know, 49ers, you know, Dolphins. It's just all sorts of activity, which is kind of unique, I would say, for a uh, for a Friday. I know one thing that's on my mind is uh, like Jimmy Gar- uh, Garoppolo for where, you know, all the moves that the 49ers are making – you know, suggest that, you know, they're going to, you know, lock down a quarterback. But it's funny because you got NFL Network, Ian Rappaport, you know, that's saying, hey, Jimmy G is the 49ers starter for 2021. So I remember tweeting earlier the uh, the WandaVision uh, meme of, uh, of Agnes or Agatha Harkness, where she was uh, kind of looking at the camera doing the wink because I was just like, yeah, uh, I, I doubt that that's going to happen where Jimmy G is, uh, is under center. So I know that's an intriguing uh, situation. That I'm, I'm looking forward to see how that uh, unfolds. I'm going to disagree with you, brother. I'm really? going to say that um, more likely than not, I think their target is Trey Lance. And he could use a year um, similar to how Patrick Mahomes got a year but behind Mm -hmm. Alex Smith. I think the Niners are primed and ready to go to the playoffs. And I think it's up to – I think Jimmy G will – I would say it's 70 80% he's with them on opening day. Uh, If Trey Lance is the quarterback, and as long as he plays well, I think he will Mm -hmm. be the starter this year. Yeah. And, you know, give Mr. Lance, you know, six, seven, eight weeks at least. And yeah. if Jimmy's struggling, maybe you will see them uh, pull the trigger to Trey Lance. Um, but my feeling is that they're looking at Trey Lance and not uh, just, Justin Fields. Uh, yeah. Would you um, agree with that? Now, I, I, I would agree with that. I'm like, if they are going to roll with Jimmy G, then have a guy like Lance that's there that can marinate, you know, for a little bit. 
But I just think I just think it's tough for where I'm like if you're looking at Jimmy G, I'm like he's paying attention to the news flow, and then just with having news like that hits, it's definitely got to mess with your psyche up here, kind of going into this season. But you know, hey, mental toughness is a part of the game. What do you think about uh, like with Sammy Watkins? I thought that was pretty uh, pretty interesting. One year deal, five million dollar contract. Not exactly I mean, the weapon I would have liked for them to give uh, Lamar Jackson, right? <laughs> well, they couldn't get the the weapons that they wanted. Yeah. And, you know, that is um, something that is, you know, is uh, unfortunate, I think, for him. Very. And I, I just think that, um, you know, they got the, the best player left. Um, I just don't know how much Sammy has left in the tank. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't think that he has a lot that's left. And then you've got the other uh, kind of the elephant in the room with Sammy Watkins. It's like. Is he going to last like 16 games? Is he going to be available? I know it's a one-year deal, uh, but it's still just setting up for uh, Marquise Brown to uh, to have a really, uh, really nice season. I know he closed the season out strong last year, if you include the playoffs. I know we kind of talked about that on, uh, I think, week one, I believe, where we talked about that article uh, that I had over at uh, Moody Fantasy Facts about the breakout wide receivers. I know Brown, you know, was one of them. So definitely still elevates, you know, his value, even though you have a guy like Watkins that's there. So It'll be a, a very uh, intriguing uh, situation there. I'm trying to think about some other news that's uh, that's recently uh, that's recently. Hit. Well, Miami made two trades. Yeah, uh, you know they traded down and then they traded up, mm-hmm. and so that's interesting. I see Chris is on. Um, you know he can hang out till nine forty-five. Chris, can you hear me? Wave <laughs> if you can. <laughs> All right, let's get. Let's. You know what? We'll, we can talk. You know, a lot of people are going to cover that. Let's get the guy. Let's start with Michael. Yeah. Um, let's get him on. Uh, Michael, how you doing, brother? How's it going, Todd? Thanks uh, for having me on, and you too as well, Moody. Always good to talk. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing uh, Chris as well later. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I hope Chris didn't uh, misunderstand. I don't mind him being there, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so um, I, I I have your article pulled up, sort of, but I think what we're going to do is just start uh, with some questions. Um, you know, I've talked a lot, Michael, about spike weeks. In fact, I've written for Rotoviz on spike weeks, uh, especially as it relates to the quarterback position. Uh, what is the difference between spike weeks and the term you use in your articles, functional fantasy points? Yeah, so functional fantasy points, it's a stat I created last year that essentially it's just another proxy for the volatility that we really care about, and that's points added to starting lineups. Um, If we kind of go through a quick history lesson of volatility in fantasy football, it really started out first with looking at, say, standard deviation, and with a little bit more sophistication, you'll find a coefficient of variation. Um, Jack Miller did an article at Rotoviz. That, that's I believe. exactly that. That's what I majored in in college back in 1918. <laughs> exactly. So Jack Miller pretty much showed why this is useless in fantasy football. Um, you've done a lot of work with spike weeks, which really was centered around looking at thresholds of say 15 plus, 20 plus, 30 plus fantasy point weeks. And I believe that the new frontier is with what I call functional fantasy points, and. Functional fantasy is points. That, is that basically points above a certain threshold? Yeah, exactly. So, in, you, in other words, up until a, 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 to make it easier for the non-math people in the audience, um, the, the, there's a threshold 
of and below that, the the, the points aren't really worth anything because uh, this was something Sean uh, Siegel was very interested in back when I worked at uh, Rotoviz, and it was um, because up until a certain point in best ball, your your points don't even really count. Is is that fair? That's exactly the case. So I I found a baseline wide receiver production and any points below that baseline, let's call it 12 points, is counted as zero points because that doesn't that doesn't really help your team because you're going to have, you know, seven to nine wide receivers that are capable of scoring that production in a given week. What's really valuable is having points above that baseline, which is essentially uh, points added to your starting roster. And so right. that's what so functional fantasy spike weeks, is calculated. Spike weeks include that, right? And so um, go ahead, uh, Moody. Did I lose Eric? I, I can't hear him as well. Eric, you're hey, that, uh, yeah, that that's user error on there. I accidentally hit mute. So hey, don't don't judge me on use that. Use her. I barely even knew her. <laughs> it's like user error on my end. So no, I was saying, Mike, no, it's good to uh, chat with you. I know we've uh, interacted on uh, on Twitter for a while, but it's good to kind of connect the dots with the face and uh, in, in the voice. So I do have a question for you. So uh, your original article, you know, uses Will Fuller and Larry Fitzgerald, you know, in nineteen to make a point about uh, the value of spike weeds. Can you tell uh, us a little bit more about that? I think that this was a perfect dichotomy and is a very good way to kind of conceptualize functional fantasy points. Um, So in 2019, Larry Fitzgerald had an ADP one round later and also scored 40 more fantasy points than Will Fuller. So with a later ADP and more fantasy points, that's kind of a recipe for a higher win rate. And yet Fuller was the the one with the 10.8% win rate, while Fitzgerald had just an average 8.4% win rate. In this article, I kind of go through and uh, show the week-by-week breakdown. And you can see that Fuller, he had a huge 54-point PPR day. And that nearly fueled all of his functional fantasy points that season. It was just a single spike week. Compared to Larry Fitzgerald, he actually had seven weeks where he had he accumulated functional fantasy points above the baseline, but they were just such minor points above baseline that he only scored 24 functional fantasy points on the year compared to Fuller's, I think it was 48 that season. And so that's really what contributed to the functional fantasy point difference and the win rates in my opinion. And it's quite remarkable that just one week really made Fuller season. Right. I I remember that. And, you know, all the more if he had, not gotten hurt and he put up three or four of those weeks, how much more his, you know, his win rate would have started cresting. And it's something that I have, you know, if you, if I could only have one stat for best ball, it would be win rate, right? Because you can perceive so much from win rate. Um, and, and I, I think, you know, um, I had a question about baseline, but I'm going to turn it into, the volatility people assume volatility is good to get away from that baseline that we talked about, but your article talks about how volatility on its own isn't a good thing. Am I correct? So it's if if I'm understanding your your question correctly, volatility you, you, you may not be <laughs> volatility in itself is is not necessarily it doesn't matter because if you're scoring one points 
and nine points every week. You know, it's kind of volatile between, you know, an eight point split, but that doesn't matter if you're not actually adding points to your starting lineup. What matters is scoring points that contribute to starting lineups. Correct. And so I feel like volatility and spike weeks, I think we understand the term. Uh, I, I think most people who do these regularly understand that uh, volatility in and of itself isn't good. In fact, when I look at Marquise Brown last year, he was volatile, but he didn't have the kind of spike weeks that actually give you a a, a nice win rate, right? Uh, And I've done some studying about, you know, and it depends on the season, but a couple years ago before the quarterback position went crazy, the fact that if you could get quarterbacks who would give you 30-point weeks – their win rate, you know, guys like the, that year, Russell Wilson and Ben Roethlisberger had far less fantasy points than some other quarterbacks. Uh, but Cam Newton's win rate was incredible because he had so many 30, 35 point weeks. Uh, so it, the, the term still applies, but what you've done is put a metric to it. Right. I think that to me, I never really it was difficult for me to conceptualize kind of the difference between say having one 40 point week versus a two 25 point weeks for a wide receiver. And I think that because functional fantasy points, you get one number to combine the stats. It helped me really compare two different receivers that might've scored points in a, in a different way. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. No, no good stuff. All right. I'll throw another question at you, Michael. Are you ready? Let's hear it. All right, let's do it. So why don't you take a moment to explain like adjusted win rate over expectation and also how functional fantasy points explains anywhere from you know 23% to 40% of the variation in wide receiver win rates. So I think that we can kind of break down the simpler part first, and that's what is a win rate over expectation. And that's just simply the difference between a, a player's win rate and an average win rate. So in a 12-team league, you can expect an average win rate to be 1 in 12 or 8.3%. So a player with a 10% win rate, their win rate over expectation would be plus 1.7%. So it's just having the expectation being converted from 8.3% to a baseline of 0%. Now for the adjusted part, I found that players tend to have a different win rate expectation based on their position and where they are drafted. Mm -hmm. For example, a wide receiver that's drafted in round three, they have an average win rate of 9.9%, while a wide receiver drafted in round 10 has an average win rate of 6.9%. And I was looking at adjusted win rate over expectation because I wanted to purely look at the effect of functional fantasy points on win rates. And I used this adjusted win rate over expectation to account for where a wide receiver was drafted to have an isolated effect. Mm-hmm. However, I, I want to give the caveat that to be clear, I don't think that we should always adjust our win rates like this. For example, if we're looking at roster construction, which you know, you're know you going to be bringing on Chris later onto the podcast, I don't think that we should be looking at adjusted win rates because that is exactly what we are trying to find out in that case is when is the best time to draft a position. Mm-hmm. So I think adjusting your win rates can be helpful if you're trying to find an isolated effect, but 
in fantasy football, we don't always want to isolate an effect. We want to see how they impact win rates overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that we're going to get to some questions that dig into that a little further. Um, you know, understanding win rates and how they come about is critical, but it, it isn't simplistic. And I think a lot of people want to make it simplistic. And that while we need to do all this re- research, not all of it fits into a tight story. But in general, it's a combination of draft capital, points scored, and spike weeks. And uh, the one that I think people miss out on is how well the player you drafted did against others at or around the same ADP. So, for instance, last year, Kamara and Cook's win rate was inflated by how many busts and injuries were drafted around them. That's harder to cook into win rate. Don't you agree? Yes, I I absolutely agree with this, and I definitely think it's more of a factor, though, for players with early ADPs rather than later ADPs. Um, There tends to be a lower standard deviation in ADPs for earlier round players, which means you can see player win rates more highly correlated with with one another in early rounds. So there's actually a really good tool on Rotovis that's going to help us untangle this. If you use the best ball win rate explorer, um, there's the page called player win rate explorer, and you can analyze stacks this way. And so you can see, let me pull it up here. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'll pull it up. Okay. I'm going to share the screen. Yeah, it's a really useful tool, and I do like that quite a bit. Yeah, I want I want everyone to see it. Yeah, best so ball the win best rate ball explorer. Ball. Yes, exactly. And then, of course, it wants me to log in, even though I logged in five minutes ago. Rotoviz <laughs> always kicking you off. The only thing that drives me crazy about Rotoviz, I am always uh, getting logged out. So over here. You would well. Which which one player win rate explore? Correct. Yeah, the second tab right there. Right, and then let's go over to <clears throat> FFPC, <laughs> and we'll keep it at one quarterback in classic, and then you can see it loading. And so, uh, like right here, the focus players Dak Prescott. Why don't you explain that for us? Right. So I can walk us through this. So last year we had. In the early rounds, three glaring busts at the beginning of the draft because of injury. So you had Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, and Ezekiel Elliott all having very poor win rates. So these were draft picks one through through three. And so players with an ADP of 22 through 26 probably had deflated win rates compared to their true value. So if you select Mike Evans as your focus player, he had an ADP of 26.6 right around that 2-3 turn. Yeah, this is what I, I used to call this um, the supercharge effect, where it when it work like like when it works in reverse. So like let's look at it in reverse. You got Alvin Kamara, and who would who would correlate with Kamara? You could probably still put Evans in there. Eh, who, we who can make a play the, with a higher win rate. I don't remember who was going then. Yeah, let me pull it up right here. Yeah, but 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 the point is, um, win rates 
are much more volatile in the early rounds. You know, every year the, the, the worst win rates are on guys that were drafted in the first and second round. And the highest are, you know, you would think it's that guy who you drafted in the 14th round, James Conner, a couple years ago. Uh, and he had a good win rate, but the highest win rates historically have been guys like Christian McCaffrey and Todd Gurley in their big years when they match up with other players who also had a good year like Todd Gurley did that year. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, two very consistent players when you look back uh, over that time frame. All right, let, 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 me, uh, let me get out of the – the sharing, but you know, people can check that out and play with it. And I think it's a, it's a great, uh, a great thing. All right. All right. Looks like I'm on deck. Yeah. But a lot of the tools at Rotoviz are, are, are great. You're really useful things. One thing I've learned too, is that with using those tools, I'm like, if you invest like some time up front on understanding how the tool works, and that goes really for all their tools, including the best ball suite. I'm like, I'm like it really enhances your effectiveness on uh, you know kind of uncovering nuggets and finding some uh, info there. So another question for you, Michael: um, Do functional fantasy points help us predict future win rates? And then kind of a follow up to that. And if not, you know what do they predict? So if we take a, a step back for a moment. The primary goal here is really to just find an edge that the public is not accounting for. So it's really important to understand that functional fantasy points, it's a it's a retrospectively looking at player point distributions. It's not accounting for a range of outcomes or also what I call as upside. Instead, we're looking at players who score the exact same number of points. Do we want the player with spike weeks or do we want the one with rather consistent production? And so after creating player matches that compared wide receivers with similar ADPs and PPR, I found that those with higher functional fantasy points on average had an increase of 0.6% in their win rates over expectation. And so that's, that's pretty significant, actually. So if two players were to score the same number of fantasy points, I want the player with the higher functional fantasy points. However, as your question is asking, what about you know predicting next year's win rates. When I looked at year over year correlation of, of functional fantasy points, I found that it does it does correlate year over year. However, it's almost all because of their PPR production. If you control for PPR, it does not appear to be very sticky. So as of now, it doesn't it seems like functional fantasy points is more of a descriptive stat for explaining previous year win rates, but I have not found a way to really predict functional fantasy points better than just predicting PPR fantasy points. Yeah. I, I think the way that you would is you'd have to uh, dribble off, off screen a little bit. In other words, you, you would, you know, like one example is it's kind of a different kind of modeling. Like I remember that year when uh, Devonta Freeman and, and Tevin Coleman you know, both had their big win rates when they were in Atlanta. So what I did is I started looking for other running back duos who, because of the uncertainty of the uh, the role of who's going to get what, um, they both. You know, one of the that one of them was uh, would would pay off because uh, I'm not explaining this well. Freeman was going in like the seventh, and Coleman was going in like the tenth. So the next year. 
I took on uh, Ware in the sixth or seventh, and Kareem Hunt in the tenth. And then when Ware went down, my Hunt shares. I, in other words, I would stack them together because I would figure that in the seventh round, Ware was worth it, and in the tenth round, Hunt was there. That they wouldn't kill me if somebody didn't get injured or outright win the role if it was a true split, but that if I got lucky. I would get a huge win rate. And I think that kind of modeling is what functional fantasy points can do. It can lead you to look for people who are in the same situation as the guy who put up the functional fantasy points the year before. Does that make sense? I think that one of the ways I look at functional fantasy points is because it's not very predictive year over year. I look for, for... regression in terms of functional fantasy points. So players who under or overperformed in terms of volatility in the previous year, I think that the the public tends to draft based off previous year. So I remember last year people were kind of, um, I think it was Mike Williams. He was going very high because people um, thought of him as a volatile player, but actually in the year before he was overproducing his volatility um, or maybe it was the other way around. I, I forget specifically. But for example, this past year, Jamison Crowder was going pretty late because people thought of him as a consistent receiver. But he was actually, this past year, quite volatile in terms of functional fantasy points. So you can see that people kind of overcorrect for it almost in best ball. I like that. Yeah, that's um, good. Why do you say we should stop chasing volatility when it's pretty clear that spike wins do affect win rates in a positive way due to the nature of best ball. Right. So I think that's kind of what we, we've kind of been touching yeah, upon I, briefly. And it, it's just counterintuitive in that we know that functional fantasy points clearly positive, positively affect win rates. But as we discussed, functional fantasy points appears to not be predictive and the players with higher functional fantasy points in the year prior tend to be drafted earlier in the following season. So even though it's because the stat is not predictive year over year, we can kind of see regression towards the mean, even though players are being drafted earlier. Yeah. Spike weeks are somewhat predictive, but like when you, you gave a good example of Jamison Crowder, what made him so spiky is he put up more touchdowns than you would have expected. And he also got more catches than we would have expected. Because you know, so because he got more catches, he had more opportunities for touchdowns, and that gives you more chances for spike weeks. Eric, go ahead. Yeah, another uh, another app you know that came to uh, mind, like at RotoViz, was the uh, ranges of outcome. Uh, you know that tool. I just like how it uses that historical data, to, you know, just to help you know, users to better understand like a player's like realistic you know, range of outcomes, especially for the upcoming season. Cause it made me think about that when you mentioned about people that are always looking at like last year's data, it's just natural. But I look at it this way too. I'm like, you're not going to drive your car by looking uh, in the rear view mirror. You need to look straight ahead. You know, if you look in the rear view mirror, obviously bad things are going to uh, going to happen. But uh, I felt like what would be useful for everyone that's watching or listening, uh, take a moment, Michael, to explain like higher, uh, range of outcomes and how like your rotoviz like they're calculated and how they fit into win rates. Right. So I think that maybe someone who works in models has a better way of separating these two than myself. But the way I think about 
a key distinction is the distinction between distributions and range of outcomes in that distributions are based around a set of outcomes while a range of outcomes are based around a changing you know output so put it another way i think an example would be helpful if we guarantee the player scored 100 points a distribution means that the player might score 10 points 10 times or 100 points once and zero every other game However, a range of outcomes differs in that you can account for upside and downside in this way. A player might score 100 points, 50 points, or 150 points. Mm -hmm. So that's how I distinguish the two. And I think they're very important to understand that separation because the range of outcomes is how you capture upside in the player. And Rotovis helps us do this by using the, the range of outcomes tool, and it uses historical data to come up with player comparisons to see how other players have previously done it in the following season um, to create a, a range of outcomes for a player uh, player's projection. Yeah, really good explanation. Thank you. Um, you talk about in your articles about empty calories and what what types of players um, gave empty calories last year. And which ones maybe uh, are you looking at that might give some empty calories this year? Yeah. And I know obviously that... explain what you mean by empty calories. Yeah, this is obviously not I a nutrition obviously podcast. I had too many empty calories, so I don't know. <laughs> so empty calorie fantasy points are what I call the fantasy points that contribute to baseline production. And so they're very replaceable. So as I mentioned before, the baseline score for a wide receiver is about 12 fantasy points. So any game that a player scores up to 12 fantasy points, I consider that to be empty calories because it's not really adding value to your starting lineup at that point. Um, an yeah, example I use... in best ball when you need... You know, the reason that spike weeks are so important is, in general, best ball is... It's very top-heavy, the money. Right, and so an example of this is someone like Danny Amendola. He, last year, he scored 104 fantasy points, and yet he only scored 2.8... Uh, functional fantasy points. These are the players like Larry Fitzgerald and Frank Gore, where you look back at the end of the year and you see that they finished relatively highly in total PPR points, but you just intuitively know that they didn't actually help your starting lineups. Those are the empty calorie fantasy point players. Yeah. And in general, in best ball, it's my rule to try and avoid players like that. Um, I'd rather take a shot on some rookie running back, a wide receiver who runs fast, um, you know, because, you know, early you're not drafting any empty calorie players, at least I hope not. But I think it's a big mistake. Like people are going to point to Cole Beasley and say he's Mr. Empty Calories, but last year he put up over 200 points. But to me, that's an outlier um, and it's not something you really want to chase. My uh, my hot take for the 2021 season, I'll give you an early-ish round wide receiver who I think is more of an empty calorie player, is someone like Robert Woods. I think that he tends to be overvalued given his lack of, of upside and spike weeks in best ball leagues. I think he's a great you know, nor traditional um, fantasy football player, but for best ball, he tends to be overvalued in my opinion. And, you know, that might change this year with the addition to Matthew Stafford. But historically speaking, I, I would say that Robert Woods has been one of those empty calorie fancy point producers in the early rounds. Interesting. 
His yeah. win rate's not bad. Wasn't bad in 2017. Well, it was actually very good in 2017. It was great in 2018. 11.6 and 14.0. But since then, you're right. As they got away from the pass more, he, he the last two years he was being drafted earlier and had win rates of 8.4 and 9.5, which isn't terrible. But you know, like you said, in in the rounds where he's going, that's just average. Yeah, no, that, that's that's interesting uh, on uh, on Robert Woods. I know I know he's got some diehard fans that are out there, and some that you know aren't big fans. But yeah, that that's interesting. I'm gonna make a note on that. Do you Love. have anyone that's a uh, empty calorie producer in the early rounds for you? I'm gonna look. That's what exactly what I'm going to look at right now. Yeah, I guess while uh, while Todd's looking that up, um, kind of kind of had me thinking, Michael. You know, people. Uh, you know, fantasy football fans, hey, they they love big plays. You know, they they love they love touchdowns. You know, a lot of people watch red zone, right? Uh, but a question for you related to that, like, do you view like big plays and touchdowns like as the opposite of empty calories? And have you done like any studying on like long touchdowns and the effect on win rate? Yeah, so I, I would consider, as opposed to the opposite of empty calories, these are the superfood plays. And these big plays and touchdowns are the plays that we really want to target for the spike weeks and that will contribute to your functional fantasy points. And so, uh, so far, I have found that functional fantasy points don't necessarily predict next year's functional fantasy points after we account for PPR, Um but they do highly correlate with PPR. So as a result, to my understanding, the best way is to really target uh, players that you project for higher PPR production. Um, Like as you'll see, it makes um, the highest functional fantasy point players last year were all the big names. I think all the players with um, like Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill, Calvin Ridley, they were all flooding the top of the functional fantasy point charts. And so I think it's just really important to reiterate that, It's a simple fact, but sometimes people try to overcomplicate things and think about, you know, who has the higher A dot, but sometimes you just want to draft the best fantasy players. Um, And that's, that's more so at the top end of the range at the bottom, you know, as you get lower and lower down the ranks, you might have to consider more player archetypes to get higher um, spike week production. Uh, Two names that really stick out to me for 2021 are T Higgins and DJ Moore. I think they have a lot of upside right now um, where they're being drafted and they could really be giving the splash plays that we really want to see in best ball. Yeah. I'm worried a little bit about Joe Burrow. Anytime you've got a quarter, anybody coming back from multiple ligament tears, it makes me wonder about them starting late. Um, But I like Higgins as a player. So back to the empty calorie question. I'll throw down um, one of my favorite running backs in the NFL is part of this, and that's Nick Chubb. Um, I think any two down backs that are going in the first and second round, they don't catch passes, is very likely to be an empty calorie guy because then you need the touchdowns. You know, if you get the touchdowns, fine, but, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I think Nick Chubb might be the best pure running back in the NFL right now, as far as his ability to hit the hole, accelerate through the hole. He's a, he's a guy that I love watching the play. He's a favorite of mine, 
But as long as Kareem Hunt is there um, and, and he's not catching a lot of passes, uh, it, to me, there's a good chance that he could end up being an empty calorie guy. I 100% agree with that. I think that I might have zero shares of Nick Chubb and Josh Jacobs this year. I had Dobbins zero shares. Another guy. Zero shares of Jacobs last year. Zero shares of Mark Ingram last year. I will always fade those players. Yeah. Now that's a that's a yeah, that's a good point. Like on Chubb, I'm like even if you look at like last year, you know, like in breakaway uh, breakaway runs, you know, runs of 20 more yards. I'm like, you know, Chubb tied with Jonathan Taylor, you know, for the second most. But yeah, to your point, Todd, and, and also Michael, with the lack of like receiving opportunities uh, that he'll have, yeah, it's an easy guy to fade. But as again, like with Robert Woods, I'm like Nick Chubb does have his uh, his diehard stand, right? Yeah, People. and the other the other <laughs> the other situations I look at where you could have empty calories is teams where there's too much talent. So when you look at like the, the, the Tampa and you have quarterbacks who spread it around. So I, you know, I, I'm looking for just like you do in DFS, right? We, we go every week in DFS last year. What were we looking for? You know, the people that I know that are really smart, like Zandemir, he was putting one Viking into every lineup because you don't know if it's that week, this big spike week was going to come from Justin Jefferson Adam Thielen or uh, Dalvin Cook, but almost every week one of those guys, was, and sometimes two, was giving you a, a huge DFS winning day. Um, so, you know, I I look at the Tampa Bay Bucks and I and everyone's so excited, everyone's back, and I'm sitting there thinking, great, I have to avoid almost all of them. Like I'll take a couple shares here and a couple shares there. But basically, you now need an injury for Godwin or Evans to, to, to give you the type of upside you want. They're not bad players, but I feel like they could end up being empty calorie players. Yeah, that's Michael. a good point. The, the other situation I, I want to get your opinion on, and they're all going very, very early, which is why I'm a little bit concerned, but they all have massive upside, is the Dallas Cowboys passing attack. You have Amari Cooper, CeeDee Lamb is going as a top 20 wide receiver, which I think is kind of crazy. And then you have Michael Gallup now as well. Um, they could all kind of cannibalize one another. But I can also see the scenario where, you know, at least – once a week, you get a massive spike week from each of these, from one of these players. So I think that's a situation I'm trying to still decipher. Uh, Eric, any thoughts before I give mine? Yeah, it's uh, my, my initial thought when, when Michael brought that up would just be I, I know, obviously, if you're in a draft, I think you know, Ezekiel Elliott's going to be a pretty good value uh, before he's being drafted. It depends on how his ADP develops. But you know what you're getting there. I'm not too overly concerned about, like, Tony Pollard. I, I know he had some moments last season, but I think a lot of people aren't talking about how Zeke dealt with COVID and the impact it may have had on his conditioning, you know, really for the whole season. But the receivers are very interesting, Michael uh, and Todd. Uh, it's one of those scenarios where I do want a piece of the passing attack, but it just – I may not be the first player – or not player, first uh, fantasy manager in a draft to – to get like Amari Cooper or CeeDee Lamb or Gallup. I'm just going to wait to see whoever's left like on the tail end. Cause I do want exposure to it, but I'm not going to go like overboard to 
to make sure I've got CD Lamb or Cooper like on my team. So I'll just kind of uh, read the room. Sorry. No, you're fine. No, go ahead, man. You're good. All right. So for me, I look at the the, the other example I just gave. What else do we know about that team? We know that Tampa Bay has a very good defense, right? And when you have a very good defense, it means that the ceiling is a little bit lower at the end of games because, you know, you're trying to get through the game, running the game out. What made Dallas so amazing last year was just how bad their defense was. And I think it'll be better this year probably, but I still expect it to be bad. So I do want to be at least even weight on C.D. Lamb because I think whether it's next year or the year after, he's going to be a first or second round pick. He's just that good, right? So I don't want to, you know, like uh, two years ago, uh, I was big on Chris Godwin and he gave me a nice win rate. Last year, Calvin Ridley, nice win rate. You know, when you see these wide receivers who, you know, it's the same thing again, back to DFS, something that JM DeWin talks about. You know, who are the $6,500 guys who we think are going to be 9000 by the end of the year? Who are the $4,500 guys that are going to be six? I think C.D. Lamb, I think Amari Cooper, we know what he is at this point. So I'm less likely to want to take a shot on Amari. But C.D. Lamb is a guy that I feel could give me that first or second round value, and I don't want to miss out on it completely. I think the the real key to the the Dallas offense is just getting their RB1 Tony Pollard on every team. Well, I have had so much Tony Pollard the last two years, and, um, you know, uh, I was going to avoid Zeke completely, and then I realized that the five or six games that Dak was there, Zeke deserved to be drafted in the first round. So, you know, I'm not going to completely fade him because, as I've been very honest about, that's what's killed me the last couple of years, trying to pick winners and losers in the first couple rounds. Um, but I, uh, from a pure football and fan standpoint, I agree with you that Tony Pollard is probably – Uh, the more exciting back at this point, Michael. Michael, this was absolutely fabulous. Check out, Michael, what is your uh, Twitter handle so people can follow you? Yeah, my my Twitter handle is Michael underscore Dubner, and you can find all of my work at Rotoviz. And thanks again for having me on, Todd and Eric. This was was fun to chat on a Friday night. Dude, you you really crushed it, and keep up the good work. It was an honor to have you on the show. Good stuff, Michael. Take care. All right. You too. All right, that's going to do it for Michael, and uh, he crushed it, Eric. I mean, absolutely, you know, you know, and that's why I love these Rotoviz guys, these young Rotoviz guys. You know, anyway, um, speaking of young guys, who's not quite as young as he was when he was first on my podcast, it's time to add Chris Allen to the show. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well, fellas. Can you guys hear me? We can hear you, but you're frozen. Yeah, I don't know what happens. Every now and again, uh, my my camera winds up messing up on me. Uh, I'm not sure what the deal is. I think you're in portrait mode, brother. It, it, I don't know what the deal is. This has happened. <laughs> this has happened a couple of times uh, for me. You need me to like hop out and come back in, or you think we can? Yeah. Why more? don't you do that? All right. Let and me we'll, try this. We'll, we'll talk about Miami and the trades while you're gone. Okay. All right. Give me two seconds. All right. All right. So so Miami. 
jumps back and then jumps forward and people on Twitter are freaking out like who the hell do they want at six? Mm -hmm. And I went through it and I mean, Jamar Chase could be the guy, but they've got Devontae Parker and they've got, um, they just signed Will Fuller. Uh, do they want a running back? Uh, you know, an offensive lineman? I mean, I could see an offensive lineman maybe, yes, but yes. I don't know that there's one that's that much better. I, I, You do more of this offensive lineman stuff than I do, Eric. Who do you think the Dolphins might be looking at at six? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about that earlier. I could see it going so many different ways. You know, they could go off a lineman. I'm like, they could they could use a running back, could use a wide receiver. Um I'll I'll tell you. You know, you know I'm an offensive line guy, you know, since I played the position, but I would really see oh there he is. Hey Chris. I would, on, guys. Yeah, I would see them I would like to see them land like Jamar Chase. That that's what I would like to see them see them do. Well, I I have no idea what they're doing. Unless they think the fourth quarterback, uh, Justin, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's too early to give up on Tua. I mean, you spent the fourth or fifth pick in the draft on Tua last year. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know. But one thing I do know is they dropped back to 12, picked up two first-round picks, and only mm-hmm. gave one of them back to go up to six. Mm-hmm. So now they've got a future first-round pick. They've got the sixth pick in the draft. Uh, they've got a lot of draft picks. I am really impressed overall with what they uh, uh, one of those organizations who we felt was never going to get it right seemingly is starting to get it right. Yeah. No, it just yeah, no it's good. Just imagine that I'm like the you know if you got Devontae Parker that's there, they do land Jamar Chase and then like you were saying about Tua, I don't think they should give up on him because I'm like it was a it was a very unique year last year going into the season. So it threw off a, a lot of NFL players' rhythm, I'm sure. But then you you never want to discount a quarterback's development from like the rookie season, you know, to their to their second year. So I'm excited to see what Tua brings to the table, and I'm just salivating thinking about uh, him throwing footballs to uh, Jamar Chase and also um, uh, Devontae Parker. But anyway, maybe, maybe they want to reunite him with Devontae Smith. I think it would be too early for him. <laughs> Chris, how you doing, bro? I'm doing all right, fellas. How y'all doing tonight? Good. Tell us a little bit about where your career has taken you. I mean, uh, we're, uh, doing podcasts last season with Dink and uh, Mike Leone. <laughs> yeah. um, y- you have you have uh, you've been doing really good for yourself. Tell us a little bit about it. Oh man, um, I think since the last time you and I got a chance to sit down, uh, I mean the the industry has been kind to me. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, continuing, unlike your, ca- unlike your uh, camera. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm always fighting with technology, but never with the fantasy football industry. Uh, but I think being able to work for uh, a number of great sites, uh, 444 is typically my home, but I've been able to branch out and I've worked uh, with the folks at Numberfire, uh, Dynasty League Football. I caught on with uh, NBC Sports Edge this uh, this past season. Oh, that's uh, also, cool. I didn't even know that one. Yeah, and also over at Football Guys as well. So it's just being able to network and meet with folks like Joe Bryant, talking with uh, Silva and Dink, like you had mentioned. Uh, it, it's just really, it's, it's been really great. I mean, for, for lack of a better term. But I think the, the big thing is continuing to work in a, a niche area, which is 
primarily been the the weather uh, research. So that's what you can find me at Twitter, Chris Allen, FFWX and the WX for, for weather. I mean, that's what has gotten a lot of folks interested in my work. But then on top of that, being able to provide a decent amount of analysis when it comes to best ball redraft and, and all that, because that's my background. I mean, I'm, I'm an engineer by trade. So trying to take data, disparate uh, amounts of analysis and try and make it so that it makes at least makes sense to me. I'm not that smart. I'm, I just say I'm not smart. I'm stubborn. That's, that's why I do this podcast so I can yeah. learn. Yeah. So right? that, that's like why I, I do it. I, I, I say that yeah. all the time. I'm, yeah. you know, the, the questions that I ask, I'm asking because I don't know most of the time. And that's and exactly I want to learn. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I love being that fly on the wall and like enlisting to folks like yourself. And, and that's actually why I was sitting in the uh, in the background of, during this podcast, because I, I wanted to listen to you guys talk with Mike, uh, because yeah, I wanted to learn cool. and, and listen to what he has to say about the work that he's doing at Rotoviz, because you know that the folks over at RV are kicking out good content and the conversation I thought would be valuable. And I think that's where a lot of folks can get there. I can get a lot of the things that you might miss if you're always, uh, you know, just scanning, you know, scrolling through Twitter and all that. I mean, just listening to good conversations like that is really where it's at. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, um, what, what, you know, in, in reviewing your article, uh, on, on, um, on roster construction, what I like about it is that you looked at it in a different way than what we've seen in the past as it relates to like, uh, the Rotoviz tools, and uh, you, you kind of broke the draft up into sections, which I thought is good. Um, my first question, though, is while there is an ideal build based on last season's numbers, there's still many ways to win in the FFPC. Mm -hmm. uh, and what are a couple of the best builds from last year? So it's actually funny that you asked that because the top two builds from 2020 were the exact same top two builds from 2019. And so just for folks that might not understand, when we say builds or when we're talking about roster construction, it's how many players that you want to, how many draft spots you want to allocate to each position. And so right. typically the order goes quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end. And then of course with FFPC, it's kicker and defense. So the top two builds for the last couple of seasons, and when I say top two, I'm talking about the ones that had the highest amount of uh, commonality across winning rosters. So win for, rate. exactly. We're, yeah. we're, we're with Michael. We talked about player win rate. What <laughs> we're talking about now is roster construction win rate. Exactly. Yes. So for the past couple of seasons, it's been uh, three quarterbacks, uh, seven running backs, eight wide receivers four tight ends and three at both defense and kicker. And then the second is three quarterbacks, six running backs, nine wide receivers, four tight ends. And then again, three at both defense and kicker. And I thought that was interesting that at least from a, a stability standpoint, if folks are approaching the draft and kind of looking for, I guess, those ideal boundaries and how many, uh, how many draft slots they want to allocate to each position, those at least set you up for at least a way to build an optimal roster. Now that's not to say that you're not going to wind up catching fire and, you know, drafting guys like Justin Herbert at the back end of the draft and pulling some odd construction into, in, uh, into first place. 
But at least for the most part, if you're just trying to understand and hop into best ball, those are the easiest ways for you to put together, again, a, a viable uh, viable uh, draft construction. I, I always compare it to guardrails, right? Yes, they that's the best way. They, yes. they, they put guardrails up on the, <laughs> on the highway so that you don't r- drive off the road. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're on the road, you have a chance of getting where you want to go. Right, right. I think yeah. that's the best way to look at it because – uh, and it, it changes throughout the draft. You still have to draft good players. Yes, yeah, so that's exactly it. Because you can't just say, like, I'm just going to draft Ben Roethlisberger, Sam Darnold, and insert and like uh, and Taysom Hill. Boom, I've got my three quarterbacks and I'm done. No, 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 no. Like, they're, they're, you know, you have to at least put a little bit more thought in. You can't let the Kyler Murrays of the world just completely pass you by. I mean, there's a little bit more rigor that comes into it. But again, if you use those guardrails, and so instead of you know drafting six quarterbacks, because I've seen guys that have done that, or five tight ends, I've seen guys that have done that because with FFPC, because of the 1.5 TE premium scoring, a lot mm-hmm. of folks want to try and get as many tight ends as possible. Not the optimal way to do it. So that's where mm-hmm. that's where having those got those guardrails and saying that you know this roster construction, you've kind of fit within those. It at least give you again guardrails for you to put together a decent roster. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, we'll continue kind of going down that uh, that guardrails uh, rabbit hole a bit. Now, uh, kind of going back to Rotoviz, I know we had Michael on earlier. I know Rotoviz, you know, Sean Siegel, you know, the other analysts there, you know, Mike Beers. I know they've done like a lot of research, like by position. And uh, would you agree that some of the, the good guardrails are, you know, two to four quarterbacks, uh, six to seven uh, running backs? seven to nine wide receivers, you know, three to four tight ends and uh, three each, you know, like uh, kickers, you know, defenses. Uh, I just want to really get your opinion and um, insight, Chris, into those guardrails and, you know, if you agree with them or disagree. No, I absolutely agree. And I think especially for, and I'll call them the the core positions and okay. uh, I, uh, for running back and wide receiver. And I call them the core positions because that's where you're placing most of your draft assets, right? Yeah. Because as we were just talking about with running back and wide receiver, we're probably putting what about 14, 15, 16 draft slots into those two positions. Exactly. So I do think that Drafting around, yeah, about four or so running backs, especially in like the early to mid phases of the draft where you know that from an opportunity cost standpoint, we'll be talking about more of that later, but you know that you want to capture those, you know, those not just the one, two down backs, like the uh, discussion you guys were having about Nick Chubb. You want those three down backs. You want those backs that are catching passes out of the backfield. You want those backs that you know are going to be getting those money touches uh, inside the red zone, inside the 10. So that, those are the guys that you're looking for. So if you can capture a lot of that, you can have around four to five running backs. And then, of course, in the same what thing goes with wide receiver. I mean, of course, you want your Devontae Adams and your Tyreek Hills at the beginning. But of course, you want to be able to sprinkle in the Tyler Boyds of the world, uh, the Marquise Browns of the world, if you're still into Hollywood. I mean, but it's just those guys that will give you uh, the same for me. I mean, but you always want to sprinkle in those those mid round guys throughout their at your draft because you know when it comes to wide receiver, some of that value uh, is uh, more or less sustained throughout like the middle rounds. Like from a fantasy points per game standpoint, some of the same guys you'll be drafting in the fourth, fifth, and sixth round. I mean, they at least have the potential to reach some of those guys in the second round, but at the very least, they have a baseline uh, baseline of about fourteen to fifteen fantasy points per game, which is what you want for guys that, that are going in that range. Yeah. yeah, we talked a little bit about how you broke it down more by um, how to handle construction in certain parts of the draft. 
you start with a one to six, uh, the first round to sixth round strategy. Please explain some of the key takeaways and what are some of the most optimal ways to attack the first six rounds? Sure. And I broke it down this way because I don't know if I'm the, if you guys are the same way, I still get kind of freaked out within those first six rounds because those, when the big names are coming out, I mean, that's when p- folks are that's drafting. That's when you win and lose the draft. Basically. Exa- exactly. I mean, the, what is it? The age old adage of like, you can't, uh, you can't win your first round, but it went in the first round, but you can definitely lose in the first round. Correct. I mean, that, that sort of thing. So right. if, if there's so much importance placed on those early rounds, at least that's where a lot of folks can get nervous about who they're picking. I mean, should I pick Mike Evans over Chris Godwin or should I be taking George Kittle or, oh my gosh, somebody took Travis Kelsey at the 104. So that's where I wanted to take a look at, well, what's optimal? I mean, what are most folks doing within the first six rounds? And so from, from a analysis standpoint, it did seem like the balanced approach uh, now, especially for, since we're, again, we're talking about FFPC tight ends come into play early because of the 1.5 TE premium scoring, uh, it really was, I mean, a balanced approach. I mean, some folks were uh, taking in the first six rounds, I mean, maybe two running backs, three wide receivers and a tight end or three running backs and three wide receivers or uh, you know something along those lines, three running backs, two wide receivers, and a tight end. So uh, while you might see some folks lean more towards the uh, robust RB strategy, it does seem like more of an, uh, an, like from an optimal standpoint, I mean, trying to at least stay balanced if you want to grab a couple of running backs early and then hit wide receiver on the way out. So in rounds three, four, five, you're hitting wide receiver. That seems to make some sense. And, and, and also that works in the opposite. I mean, if you want to swing for a wide receiver because you have a later draft slot and you're kind of stuck trying to grab Tyreek Hill or something like that, like that on the back end, you can try and grab a Chris Carson in the third round. And that might still and, and that could still work out for you. It's just identifying the right profiles, or identifying the right guys that can give you that week in, week out value that you're looking for at running back in order to make that a viable strategy. The, the one the one caveat that I'll throw in there uh, in the way, you know, the way that I draft is I talk a lot about how um, I never want to drop a tier to follow a strategy, right? So if I've got player A in tier one and player uh, two in tier B, you know, and and I go in saying, you know, and now it's round four and I've got already got three wide receivers. Well, being balanced is something I believe in and I think it's very important. So as long as I've got a running back and a wide receiver in the same tier, I'll now take the running back, right? Mm-hmm. But if I've still got one guy who fell, um, you know, and I don't do it to a fault, but in general, I will still take uh, at least for the first six rounds. I mm-hmm. will take. I won't drop a tier to be balanced. My goal, I would, I love when my when I'm balanced, and the and, mm-hmm. and I want to throw this into the reason to be balanced early is so that you don't get caught in the runs that mm-hmm. happen later. So, like if you don't have any running backs and you're planning on getting player X, Y, and Z in round six, Ronald Jones and two or three guys that go in that area. What if that draft they they're already gone? Mm-hmm. And now you're now you're sitting there with five wide receivers when you really should only have four through I feel through 14 rounds. I'll take a fifth sometimes 
if you wait, you know, the, the, the benefit of being balanced, uh, Chris, and I think you'll probably agree, is that you're, you're more able to adjust to the runs of the draft. Absolutely. And I think this goes back to the point that we were all talking about earlier is that these constructions, they're like they're like guardrails. I mean, do you have to have three running backs and three wide receivers or, you know, two running backs, three wide receivers and a tight end? No. If the value presents itself in the third, fourth round, let's say for some reason, uh, let's say if you were to draft Travis Kelsey in the first round, and then you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I, I mean, I'm seeing all these running backs. Uh, I'm seeing all these wide receivers. So let me grab a, I want to grab a running back. But let's say for some odd reason, Devontae Adams were to fall to the second round. I'm just talking in extremes. There's no way I'm going to sit there and try and, you know, latch on to that run and let a guy like Devontae Adams pass me in the second round. So you have to be flexible when it comes to your draft. You have to be able to identify value. And like in having your tier set up, like you had mentioned, allows you to see that across positions, I should be looking at if I'm not able to capture the get this value at running back. Well, let me just pivot, grab a wide receiver. And then now I need to look for a different running back or a different position on my on my next draft pick. So it's I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that while these are optimal strategies, it just depends on your particular draft and where you're at in your draft so that you can make plans to, I guess, not necessarily, um, I guess, strategize in order to make sure you're picking up that value at your other positions later on. Yeah, you got, you have to be flexible. Because one, one takeaway that I have from what you mentioned, Chris, and also Todd, is that you can't be so rigid for where it's like, I can't, I, I can't do it. You know, I got to yeah. stick with this position. And so what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, just to be clear, like you're, you're, you're not saying to take like less qualified players, like to, to mm. fit into these strategies, you know, but again, to, to your point, I'm like, these are truly like um, kind of guardrails or guard posts, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, ex exactly. And I think, and I think to, to build on that point a bit more, uh, it's it really is. I mean, you you do have to try and like uh, in those first six rounds plan out. I mean, you know what's going to happen in the remaining what twenty two rounds. I mean, yeah. your decisions right there in the first six rounds, whether it's uh, two three one a uh, two three one running back wide receiver tight end or whatever combination you take, that's going to set up what you do later. Because if you're balanced, you might say, hey, in the seventh round. I might try and grab a quarterback because I'm fairly set at my other positions. But if you've wound up taking more wide receivers early, you might want to grab a running back in the fourth, fifth, sixth round in order to fill that slot. I mean, so that, I mean, what you do in those first six rounds, it really does change like how you're going to approach the middle rounds. And then obviously the late rounds as well. Yeah. You have to have contingencies, right? Mm -hmm. I mentioned that you seem to favor a balanced approach. I know for myself, I've got this one thing in the FFPC I do, is that I, I whether I could be balanced early or not, I want to be balanced by the end of round 14. I want to have two to three quarterbacks, four running backs, four wide receivers, maybe, uh, and two to three tight ends, because that's when the kicker and defense runs start. Mm -hmm. And if, you, if you're out of balance too far there, you could really run into some suboptimal, not builds, but yeah, some, some, you know, you might end up with what you said four, you know, uh, six or seven running backs. But if you only had two through 14 rounds, you're really playing from behind. So that's mm -hmm. kind of an, that's kind of like uh, my regrouping point. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, that I want to, I, I, I don't care much about my construction in the first eight to 10 rounds, but I'm using rounds 10 to 14 to try and make sure I'm balanced enough before the uh, table, you know, kind of falls out from under me at a position. Has any of your uh, studying, uh, uh, have you thought of that or done any studying on that? Yeah, I've looked at uh, like how many like running backs or wide receivers you would typically take like by about the middle rounds. And the middle rounds, I think, especially nowadays, and I'm sure we'll talk about how quarterback ADP has been pushed up. But like those middle rounds, that's where that minefield of like, should I start taking quarterback or whatever? That's where that starts to occur. But when we're talking about trying to fill out the, your other spots and uh, not necessarily adhering to roster construction, but at least strategizing on what your roster construction is going to look like, you want to try and look at, well, where are those dips in value going to be at? Because if now folks are focused on quarterbacks, well, guess what? That means that those running backs are now starting to fall. Those running backs that you might not have been able to grab and so, like the seventh round might be available in the eighth. And, you know, as and consequently, in the if a quarterback's being taken in the eighth, they might be available in the ninth, so on and so forth. So running backs that are now uh, typically being uh, like available, I'm seeing that the draft rates by like by winners in the like ninth and tenth round. That's where a lot of folks are able to capitalize on that value. They're able to take a lot of those running backs like in the uh, in those rounds in order to pick up some of that value. You might not have been able to collect earlier. So, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. That like while the early rounds might play a factor in your decision making and you want to try and capture as, capture as much value as you possibly can, once you get into those middle rounds and especially once you get up to like round 14, that's really where you need to start to regroup and see what are you going to do after, you know, the like you said, the kicker and defense run that's probably going to happen for the next four to five rounds. Okay. Yeah, because no. if you if you haven't gotten it by then, you might not get it. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Oh no no that, that's fine yeah I'm saying let, let's dive a little bit deeper down uh, you know down this well so um, I I know there's a you know a, a, a lot of talk year in and year out about different strategies you know, mm-hmm. zero running back or or a modified zero running back approach I'm like Chris with your studies and your findings does it support or disprove you know like any of those strategies and what I'm, I'm more curious about is uh, like have you researched like one run running back like in the first round or the second round you know that listeners or those that are viewing can uh, target and kind of punt the position tool later like in the draft let's kind of talk about some of those players like if there's one running back you know in, in that adp range that comes to mind i got you and yeah. uh, i haven't looked at that specifically mm-hmm. uh, but i would say that um like the from from my experience uh, looking at optimal builds and when we're discussing like what works for like a larger group of folks. Mm-hmm. So let's say like your normal, not necessarily casual, because if you're drafting on FFPC, you ain't a casual drafter. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but I would say that Perhaps. like if, w- 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 it's possible. Perhaps. But uh, no, um, I'm joking because <laughs> it is. It's, it's like, this, especially this time of year, it's a shark. It's, oh, Every yeah. Draft. yeah. Absolutely. Every draft, uh, it's like, oh God, him again. Yeah, I know. I'm starting to like. I'm recognizing a lot of names. It's like, geez, like these guys again. Like, they're, they're, t- they're taking my lunch money, Todd. Uh, but I would say that from an optimal standpoint, like, there's no, 
I'm, I'm hard pressed to believe that any strategy, any fragile strategy like zero RB or uh, like robust RB or like anything like that is yeah. going to wind up falling into the optimal strategy. Just because for one, for one reason, at least the, the main reason I can think of is because it's not employed that often. Like from a population standpoint, because if we're looking from a statistical a standpoint, point. and if we're looking at like all the drafts that happen, say out of a thousand drafts, how many people are actually going to employ a zero RB strategy? 50? I mean, maybe less than a, I mean, less than 10%. It's not a widely used strategy. I mean, for even folks like Sean Siegel that employ it, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not something that they're going to do every single time that they draft. So to well, say that it, even, but, but to your point, even if they do, it's still going to only make up a small, you know, that, that I never thought of it before, but boy, it would be interesting to see. Yeah. The, you know, and I know Rotoviz has the tools to do it with their mm -hmm. roster construction manager. Uh, you know, like if there is a hundred zero running back drafts and fifteen of them win, you know that's pretty darn good. Yeah. Yes. If you have to, you you adjust for the amount of times that that construction is used versus looking at the entire population, which is the data. That's how I assemble the data for for my articles. Zero RB will never come up because it's just a small, it's a small part of the entire population. Now, again, that's not to say that's bad. I mean, we've seen it work. I mean, Todd, you and I, we used to talk to guys like, I mean, Mike Beers and like all that, that have tried to use that strategy in the past mm -hmm. where it, it has worked for them. But it's, it's one of those things I, where I, I use the strategy. I, you yeah. know, to me, it's a tool in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. And um, like this year, I've been doing a lot more modified uh, running back, which is the one stud. Mm -hmm. And then I've only have to worry about filling, you know, if he yeah. wins, if he has a good year, then, you know, especially early when we know so much less, right. I, I have much better chance, I feel like, of that 10th to 23rd round, you know, four, five, six, seven running back actually hitting. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I believe in the strategy. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, again, like you said, Chris, drafting the best guys. And then, you know, when when the, the, the zero RB build comes my way, I know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I know not only because a lot of people don't realize that it's not just drafting a bunch of late running backs, but it's the type of running backs that exactly. you – that you, that you look for third exactly. down backs back, backups you know uh who are behind you know who we really think could get a good workload mm -hmm. anyway yeah and i think that's where and i've i've listened to so many podcasts and uh i've actually tried to employ the same strategy myself that's where you're looking for the the tony pollards uh, last year when it was zach moss where we were thinking if devin singletary were to go down like he winds up taking over the lion's share of the work Let, the latavius murray's of the world i mean it's those guys that are slotted in as rb2s uh, alexander madison is another example where we know that if the rb1 that's already in place were to go down or even if they seed 50 percent of the touches that's where that value from the 10th 12th 14th round now completely vaults you to the top of uh, to the top of your league, and if you can find those guys, and coupled with the wide receivers that you spent the first six seven rounds drafting, that's where you win. Right. But but again, it's one of those strategies that because it's not employed enough, it'll never pop up in like top twelve win rates because it's just the pool is so diluted by that point with your 
regular builds and all that, you'll just never see it. But that's, that's never that. But point. yeah, but that's never. To, that's not to say at all that they're not that, that they cannot. That's work. why I wanted to ask you the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I do believe I've, I've used it myself. It's just that I never wind up hitting on the guy. I think I think last yeah. season when I tried it, it was I tried with Saquon Barkley, didn't work. I tried it with Zeke, didn't work. Uh, I think I even tried it with McCaffrey for the couple of times that I had the one on one, didn't work at all. If I just use Alvin Kamara, that might have worked, but it's just trying to hit on the right guy and then <laughs> harnessing the power of the build afterwards in order to vault you to the top. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Let's see. Okay. You mentioned quarterback, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, quarterbacks this year, you know, like from top to bottom, we're going like two to three rounds earlier than last year. So uh, what are your recommendations for players to handle this core change to the established norms? See, and uh, it's actually perfect that I get a chance to talk to y'all tonight. Um, I'm I'm maybe a day or so out from releasing my uh, quarterback win rate article that I've been working on for four for four to follow up uh, this roster construction one. And the re uh, and I'm, I tried to approach it in a different manner because then, then the roster construction, because with roster construction, it's just, you know, what happens at different phases, what worked, what didn't work or whatever. Mm -hmm. But with such a monumental shift, uh, at least in my eyes, to where quarterbacks are being drafted, you can't you cannot leave a draft this season without one of the mobile quarterbacks. I just don't see how it's possible. Uh, I, because the, the thing that because I'm of the uh, spike weeks that you can get from them. Exactly. And it's not just the spike weeks, but it's the opportunity cost that's involved in taking them. I mean, if we're now talking about taking uh, Dak Prescott, Russ Wilson, Kyler Murray in the fifth, sixth, seventh round. I mean, who are we competing with in terms of value at the other position? It's fourth, fifth, sixth round this year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's even worse now. I mean, uh, there's uh oh, I actually, I think I thought I had it pulled up. Yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a draft right now, and let's see, Dak Prescott, I took him. Uh, Dak was in the fifth. Mm -hmm. Kyler Murray was in the fourth. Jalen Hurts is in the sixth. I mean, uh, once you get to the seventh round, you're talking about guys that like Matt Stafford and Joe Burrow and Tom Brady. I mean, but. To, and back the eighth to, is even, and the eighth is even worse. worse. Yeah, it's even worse. Trevor Lawrence and oh and, yeah, uh, yeah. I I was actually I was talking to Rich Rebar about uh, about Trevor Lawrence's ADP, and it's just the gap between Lawrence and Justin Fields does it it doesn't make sense to me at at this point right now. Like I know that we're all assuming that Trevor Lawrence goes to the Jags and they have an you know they have an established pass catching core and all that, but with Justin Fields' dual threat ability. It's they're, they're almost like a six a six round gap in between the two of them. So that's a whole other thing. But to quarterbacks in, uh, specifically, uh, one of the ways that I was breaking it down is by comparing uh, opportunity cost across the positions. And so what I'm looking at is what else are what are you sacrificing in order to draft a Dak Prescott in the fifth round? What are you sacrificing in the fourth round to draft a Kyler Murray? And from a profile perspective, while those guys, I mean, they are they are QB ones and rightfully so. But what are the range of expectations that you need to meet in order to be a QB1 and also, I guess, meet value or like to have a high win rate in best ball? Because, mm -hmm. who, again, who are you passing up in the what fifth or sixth round? It's guys like Tyler Boyd. It's the Marquise Browns of the world. I mean, there's still guys that can put up wide receiver one, high wide receiver two weeks. So uh, the from a profile standpoint, 
uh, for QB ones that are taken in the early to like fourth, fifth, and sixth rounds. So the guys that were that, that we were just mentioning uh, in terms of quarterbacks, the average, uh, the average that you need in order to make value is uh, about almost two QB one weeks, like in the across the entire season. And I'm not talking about like top twelve QB one. I'm saying the QB one okay. that has to be in their range of outcomes in order for them to make value in order to, I guess, in order to make value on that pick, that being that early in the draft. Now, if you shift that out and look at guys that are going the eighth, ninth, and 10th round, that's not so bad. The opportunity cost is lower because the uh, the wide receivers and running backs that you're taking aren't putting up as many points. So I can draft a Matt Stafford in the 10th round or ninth round because he doesn't need to outscore any of the other guys that would be drafted at other positions uh, and he can still be a quarterback. He can be a top 12 quarterback and he's not going to hurt my squad. But if you're going to draft a Kyler Murray, if you're going to draft a Dak Prescott, if you're going to draft a Russell Wilson as compared to a DJ Moore, or Brandon Ayuk, or Robert Woods or any of those other guys, I mean, that Q, like being an overall QB one, which mm-hmm. requires a rushing profile of about at least 50 yards or at least uh, 40 yards and a touchdown. Mm-hmm. I mean, that has to be a part of your. That has to be a part of that player's outcomes or range of expectations. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't go out and draft Matt Ryan in the sixth round because mm-hmm. we know that his like his probability of being a QB one, the overall QB one, mm-hmm. is not as high mm-hmm. as some of the other guys that we're discussing. So when it comes to drafting quarterbacks this year, I'm trying to look at it from that standpoint, and that's where I'm pr- trying to prioritize mobile quarterbacks or quarterbacks that have high passing volume uh, in order to uh, in order to make sure that they're at least making value and uh, and being a better part of my draft strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've got some strategies, but I, it would take us off the rails. We wouldn't get to the rest of our questions. But, uh, <laughs> but quickly, I would just say that, you know, if you, w- you know, what goes up, something else goes down. And what matters is, you know, if I take a fourth round quarterback, yeah, I'm, I'm losing opportunity costs there. But because the quarterback that someone used to get in the 10th round is now going in the eighth and the eighth round is now going in the sixth, I think you need to be disciplined and still draft the quarterback number that you want, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that, you know, and then, you know, like I had one draft li- uh, recently where I went, because there was no value, I went Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers in, I think it was the fifth and sixth round at, at, at the 12th spot. And I came back and I got Tyler Boyd and one other very good wide receiver. So, mm. but the guys who were drafting quarterbacks around me who didn't, you know, who got that, you know, guy, at the the better position, they ended up with Trevor Lawrence and Burrow and guy quarterbacks with some serious questions where I still got good wide receivers. So ultimately it comes down to, you know, your team versus the other teams and the overall value. So, you know, sometimes I'll take a quarterback in the fifth and then, you know, there's too many good guys to pass and I'll take two later. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it, it's it's a conundrum. Um, I, I do want to ask you about the tight ends. Your study showed that early tight ends is good. And, uh, you know, uh, as you mentioned, people aren't dumb. So now we're finding uh, Travis Kelsey going from last year, like pick eight or seven to pick three or two. 
mm-hmm. or four, and you're also seeing Kittle, Kittle and Waller go very early. Um, has that dynamic uh, uh, made you less likely to want an early quarter, uh, early tight end? If I miss out on those guys, yes, because similar <clears throat> similar to the quarterback discussion that we were just having, it's about the tight end number that you're getting, right? I mean, I, if I can if I can't get the tight ends like one, two, three, maybe four, if you want to if you want to try and lump in like Logan Thomas, I'm I'm still on the fence about that one. I think he's a completely he's separate tier. Yeah, people at least he's going later. People aren't believers yet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm I'm kind of lumping him into the guys that I would want to draft in the early rounds, but past that, it's more of a uh, let me look at let me look at some of the guys that are going later in order to again not sacrifice too many uh, too much in terms of opportunity cost, where I know that I can get more value at other positions, specifically wide receiver. At least for me, that's where I typically like to draft my wide receivers. So yeah, when it comes to early round tight end. Take your uh, if you can get a chance to grab a Kittle, a Waller, a Kelsey, like at value. Okay, fine. And then afterwards, it's uh, and then after that, I mean, you're trying to look at um, getting uh, any sort of value at the other positions later on because you've sacrificed so much. I mean, you sacrificed your Devonte Adams, your Tyreek Hills of the world, uh, your uh, Aaron Jones is in the second round. It's some of those guys in order to in order to get your tight end. So like we were talking earlier, in terms of being flexible and planning out your draft, you would need to then account for those other positions as you move deeper into the draft. Uh, that's good stuff. Really good stuff. Okay. We'll, we'll stay on, uh, we'll stay on tight ends. So like, who are your favorite, like later tight ends, Chris, uh, at ADP that you're really high on? Um, so I was on the Donald Parham train until that was like quickly. I don't know. I, I still think Boom. it. I still think that there's some value there because I'm not 100% sure that Jared Cook can just completely usurp him. Uh, yeah. But a few guys that I'm still in on, um, I know that like Eric Ebron, like last season, because uh, even with the Juju resigning, I'm not, I'm still slightly skeptical about what Juju Smith Schuster's usage is going to be. Because if you look at uh, from an air yards and both uh, not target share uh, specifically, but if we look at uh, Juju Smith Schuster's A dot compared to Eric Ebron's, Ebron was the one that was catching more of the downfield targets. And while Ebron was behind uh, uh, Smith Schuster in red zone targets slightly, I still think from, again, from an opportunity cost standpoint, where Eric, uh, where Ebron's going in the like 11th, 12th round. I mean, if we're still looking at one of the more pass happy offenses in the league, I think they were first in neutral passing rate last season. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's a guy that I would still want to take shots on, especially given the, the 1.5 t- uh, tight end premium uh, scoring. Yeah. Uh, another guy that I would take a look at, I'm not, I wouldn't be mad about grabbing Adam Troutman, but that's more of, I need to plan that out. Like a guy like Troutman, I mean, he burned us all. What was that in week six when he was the chalk yeah. tight end for DFS? Didn't burn me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I, like, I, I live. I, I, I avoided that landmine. Thank you. I, I, I didn't. Okay. So the, 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 the funny part is, so he graduates from the uh, university of Dayton. I live yeah. in Dayton. Like, so it's like I, I wanted to root for I'm, my hometown I'm guy. Recently divorced, so I'm hoping to do some dating. Uh, see, there you go. Uh, but <laughs> but for a guy like Troutman, I don't mind, especially the fact that he's going in the 14th, 15th round. But he's one of those guys you have to plan for ahead of time. You would want to draft like a Dallas Goddard, a Noah Fan, a Logan Thomas, or even somebody like Travis Kelsey earlier, mm-hmm. so that uh, in order to, uh, I guess, kind of hedge or at least, uh, mitigate some of that risk, you might be able to grab a guy like Troutman who at least 
uh, for all intents and purposes, would likely be the tight end one for for New Orleans. So there's a couple late round guys, and the the other guy that I kind of like, and this one might wind up uh, coming back to burn me, uh, Ferkser, Anthony Ferkser. I mean, with uh, with Johnny Smith moving like away, one. yeah, with Johnny Smith moving away. I mean, actually, it was Ferkser that wound the guy's up catching more. good. He is. I mean, because a lot of the times that we thought that Johnny Smith was going to be the one to pop off, it was actually Ferkser that was getting involved exactly. in the passing game. And so yeah. while, I mean, while Tennessee isn't the most pass-heaviest offense, it's still going to feature Derrick Henry a ton. But if they've already gotten rid of Corey Davis and Adam Humphreys, mm-hmm. I mean, that free does that should free up some targets for a guy like Ferkser. So I'm, I'm all in on him, too. Yeah, agree. I, uh, I'm wondering what your kicker and defense strategy is. <laughs> so I'm still learning about that. So, and I actually saw you tweet about this uh, maybe uh, a week or so ago, uh, because uh, from an optimal standpoint, yes, when it uh, when those kicker and uh, when those kicker runs start at about like the fifteenth round, I think in years past I've just tried to grab two, and like I've I've been one of those like I'll let the other guys draft you know, draft them, and then maybe I'll grab a couple in the sixteenth, seventeenth round. I didn't care as much. But if you're looking at from a win rate perspective, some of those guys that are the young way coups of the world, um, I think a lot of folks were in on like Tyler Bass, Robbie Gould. I mean, those guys are going as like the some of the top five like kickers, at least last season. And those are the guys that you need to pick up almost as soon as the run started happening. So taking three kickers, I think almost in like almost in order, like round 15, take your first kicker, 16, 17, just and finishing off the position. That has been a strategy a lot of, a lot of folks have employed. And I'm stri- I'm trying to integrate that into my strategy this season. Okay. No, really good stuff. So one more question for you, and we'll we'll, we'll get you out of here. Lots of very useful insight, Chris. So finally, I'm like, you give some reminders uh, at the end of your article. Uh, I guess what are the key takeaways? you know, from that, that you would want to share? I would say the two big uh, key takeaways uh, that, and this might sum up our entire conversation is like, be flexible. I mean, these are the roster construction, they're, they're guardrails. So if you get to the end of the sixth round and you find out that you've got like four running backs and like two tight ends, don't mm-hmm. freak out. All right. You can adjust your strategy, grab the wide receivers that you find at value, draft a quarterback here and there, and you can reset. And the same way uh, for uh, like if you were to go the other way and say you'd like for some reason you wound up on a wide receiver run earlier, again, you can reset. A lot of these are, again, just optimal strategies, what everybody is doing. And then if you wind up catching some value early, you can wind up rejiggering your construction or rejiggering your, your strategy in order to recoup some of that value at other positions later. Mm-hmm. Same thing for, I mean, especially for like for tight end, quarterback or whatever. Uh, but the one thing I would say for this season especially after the past couple of years. I mean, you cannot leave a draft. If you're not going to try and draft like two mobile quarterbacks early, at least leave your draft with, with one of them. Mm-hmm. Try and grab a, a, a Kyler Murray, a Dak Prescott, assuming health, a Lamar Jackson. I mean, any of those guys, I mean, th- there has to be a part of your calculus in, in terms of drafting quarterbacks. I mean, yeah. the, the value that they bring, I mean, in, in, uh, at, at, for, because most of them were rushing at least 20 to 30 yards like per game. And again, 20, 30 yards, that's an, that's an interception. I mean, think about that. I mean, that's the one way to try and balance out like how much 40 yards is a touchdown, 40 yards is a touchdown. So think mm-hmm. about it from that standpoint. So while a lot of folks like might dismiss like how much value it brings, mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what's putting a lot of folks over the top. So at least grabbing one, I'm trying to grab two. That has to be a part of your strategy. And then the last thing, and I guess we didn't really cover it a ton, uh, can, the rookies. I, oh, go I ahead, go ahead. Real quick? 
Yeah. Yeah. On that, I would just say that the way I look at the running quarterbacks is, is the running gives you a floor, mm-hmm. right? You know, if, you know, if you can, you know, uh, the good running quarterbacks, because almost every quarterback is going to throw for 200 yards, that's 10 points, right? Yeah. So no touchdowns, no interceptions, you're at 10 points. Well, if you get 30 or 40 yards rushing, uh, you know, that, uh, and and it increases your chance for a rushing touchdown. So you mm-hmm. figure, you know, point three chance of getting a rushing touchdown you know now you're looking at a 15 to 17 point floor and you know that year that Lamar Jackson went off I had a good bit of him because he hadn't shown a ceiling yet because he hadn't thrown the ball really well Mm -hmm. so I like the running quarterbacks who people think can't throw because on the weeks where they figure it out and throw for three or four touchdowns and run for 80 yards that's when you get that massive spike week. So yeah. that so you mean you're all in on Jalen Hurts then, right? I I think he's my most owned quarterback right now. I knew it. How did I know? Uh, but, he's, uh, the, he's the cheapest one. Yeah, exactly. And, and th- you know the uncertainty over his situation. Uh, once Carson Wentz was traded, people were still like, "Well, they might draft a quarterback." Mm-hmm. I I just. You know, I I, I I have a pretty good uh, baseline of Jalen Hurts, and I think he'll stay the cheapest of the running quarterbacks uh, for the near future. I agree, and I think if there's any uh, any way that you can grab him at cost now, because my guess is, uh, especially we'll see what they do in the draft, the hype around the, that Eagles squad – uh, if they wind up, uh, if they wind up grabbing a wide receiver, or if they move, uh, they try and move Zach Ertz, and they get any sort of draft capital back, so they can add more to that offense, uh, I can just see Jalen Hurts like ADP start to pick up mm-hmm. for sure. Well, you also can get Fulgham and uh, Rager in the double, you know, double digits. Yes. To, yeah. I, I've been getting Fulgham in the twenty seventh, twenty eighth round. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the guy really flashed. Anyway, yes. um, I do think we are up against the end of it, but you had one last point you wanted to make, Chris. Go ahead. Oh, the last point I was going to make is about the rookies, especially at this time of year. A lot of folks are going to be trying to take their shots on uh, the, you know, any of the rookie uh, rookie running backs or the uh, the rookie wide receivers that are going to be coming out. Um, for running backs, it's a bit more difficult uh, because, I mean, you really do need to have that majority rushing share within your offense in order to make value. I mean, even with Jonathan Taylor being as hyped as he was last season, I mean, his value, uh, he wouldn't be able to make value from a best ball perspective uh, uh, unless he got that, what, six or seven week stretch where it was just him, no Jordan Wilkins. I mean, Naeem Hines was like moved to that ancillary role and he was also scoring touchdowns. Like you need that, you need that volume. You need those touchdowns. Mm -hmm. So with running backs, it's, uh, it's a bit, it's a bit more cut and dry with wide receivers. We just need targets. Justin Jefferson, like level targets, like 16, 17% target share within an offense, along with touchdowns as well. But we need those, we need that baseline set of targets where you are operating as at least, at the very least, the team's wide receiver one or close to it in order to make value from a, at least from a rookie perspective. Awesome. Chris can be found on Twitter at Chris Allen, and that's Chris with a C. Chris Allen, FFWX. Follow him. Love him. He deserves all your love. All your love. I appreciate it, fellas. I don't know where I was trying to go with that, but wherever it was. (laughs) I'll take the love. Good. Good. 
Although I don't think you're going to love the way your face is frozen right now. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking. I'm, uh, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking. Probably not. Probably um, not. But uh, hey, man, I uh, I am always so excited to have you on. As always, you do amazing work. Um, you've come along so far in your podcasting. My goodness. Um, and it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. I still remember you te- you coaching me up, so I appreciate you being with me every step of the way, Todd. And always Absolutely. good talking to you, Eric. Always good talking you, you, to you. You're one of the few yeah. that comes back and says thank you. All right, everyone. That's Chris Allen. And um, partner, that was a good show. No, no, it was phenomenal. Hey, a lot of really useful information that I think anyone that's listening can immediately uh, implement like in any best ball drafts, you know, that they have uh, in the, in the near future. So uh, I thought you were going with uh, like a Led Zeppelin, you know, all of my love, you know, I was going to be the outdoor Beatles. Okay. Be- all my love, all my love to me. Okay. Gotcha. I was going to go Beatles. I was, I was thinking some, something with some classic, uh, classic rock there, but no, I thought it was a phenomenal old, uh, old show. Guy music. Yep. Oh no, I, I love the old guy music. I'm, I'm like, I got my bass guitars back here. I'm a Cream fan. My favorite band overall is Led Zeppelin. So, uh, I yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Zeppelin. You, no, you can't argue that. Um, yeah. I um, next this week we talked FFPC. Next week, yeah. uh, uh, Eric, we've got Scott Barrett coming on mm-hmm. to talk about his fanball oh, roster yeah. construction, and he. You know, we've booked him for the whole hour and a half. It's going to be very in-depth. I know I'm looking forward to it, and I'm Mm -hmm. looking forward to doing it with you. Thanks again for joining me. Folks, that's going to do it for this episode, and we will see you next week with the Run to Daylight program. Have a good weekend.